you're tuned to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcasted live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator. And he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for almost 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, folks, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Happy Saturday, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is New 98.7 WOKI. Thanks for tuning in. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. According to adults wide have diabetes. In the United States alone, that number is over 34 million adults which is 10.5% of the entire population. And in Tennessee, that number tops over 13.5% of our population. And that's people who have been diagnosed, does not count the undiagnosed, and does not count those that are pre-diabetic. Diabetes can also lead to other serious medical conditions, and healthcare costs can be two to three times higher for someone with diabetes than for someone without. And there isn't a cure for diabetes. There are many treatment options. And of course, there are ways to prevent getting adult onset diabetes in the first place. This morning, I'm, I'm privileged to have Dr. Denise Rivers. She's in internal medicine and nephrology. Uh, she's with University Nephrology. She's also a clinical assistant professor at UT Medical Center. And she's medical director of the UT Medical Center transplant program and is a practicing physician for several dialysis clinics in the region. Good morning, Dr. Rivers, and welcome to More Living. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, talk with us about the, the, the specialty of nephrology, and, and why did you decide? I mean, you're internal medicine and nephrology. Can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to pursue that specialist? Oh, that's a that's a long story. Um, we mostly at UT uh, in our practice practice nephrology. We don't do a lot of internal medicine uh, because one, we have excellent internists here in the Knoxville area and the outlying communities, and we have such a large uh, population of patients with kidney disease that the majority of our focus is on different kinds of kidney disease and diseases that the kidney can contribute to, like hypertension. So I, when I went to medical school, I actually wanted to become a psychiatrist and had all that planned out. And at the very end of my medical school rotations, I did a rotation in nephrology. And I fell in love with the medicine and treatment, but mostly about communicating with people uh, becoming, allowing them to become advocates for themselves in a disease process that's terrifying. People are always very frightened about dialysis because it's very unknown. 
and they hear talk about people they know on dialysis. And I found that in my rotations, the nephrologist that I worked with did a lot of kind of assessment of what was keeping the patient from helping themselves and allowing them the ability to kind of take control of their health care and be proactive in something that is really scary and you need a guide. So I quickly switched my life path and here I am. That's, that's something. You know, you know, that reminds me, my sister was a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Uh, she passed yeah. away a few years ago, but she was a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. and which you mentioned an interest in. And interestingly enough, when she went to med school, she wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon. And oh, towards wow. the That's end of her, and, and so towards the end of her rotation, she did a psychiatry rotation and fell in love with it. It's interesting yeah. how you know yeah. you can have your career path change like that. Yes, I tell most of our medical students. Um, whatever they think they're going to go into in their third and fourth years of medical school will likely not be what they go into and yeah. keep an open mind and find what they're drawn to because it's very hard to do a job that you are this much in debt <laughs> getting your education. Oh, sure. And then yeah. you know, a specialty you don't love. So we are, I was, I've been fortunate that I had this experience early That's and great. was able to find something that I love. Yeah. So diabetes, before we get too much into adult mm -hmm. onset diabetes, let's dive into the difference in type 1 and type 2 because okay. there's a cr critical differences there. So can you walk us through that? It's, it's really um, the difference between insulin presence in the body. And as a nephrologist, we don't necessarily treat diabetes, but a large, large population of our patients have diabetes and can potentially develop kidney disease. So the, the main difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is type 1 is usually early onset in youth, and it's a lack of insulin. The, the pancreas is just not making insulin, and people who have type 1 diabetes must have insulin, um, and they're, in, they're started on insulin as a medication very early in the progress or the process of their disease. Type 2 diabetes is different in that it's a later onset, and it, it's more that the body isn't able to respond to the insulin that's being made, so the pancreas makes more insulin. So it's more of a, like a hearing loss of the body toward insulin. So we have medications that can increase production of insulin, and then we have insulin itself where we kind of flood the system. So, so would, it, would it be accurate... Would it be accurate to uh -huh. say that type 2 diabetes is more of a lifestyle, very preventable disease? Oh, no. <laughs> I would strongly disagree with the, the preventable part. Um, for me, one of the most important things that I hope your listeners will hear today is that this isn't their fault. And when you mentioned your numbers across the United States, of people who have diabetes, it's 10% of the population. And I think there's a huge misconception that this is something people bring on themselves. And it's often tied to overweight and poor eating habits. 
And if you look at the numbers of obesity in the United States, about 40% of Americans are what we now deem as obese, but only 10% have diabetes or prediabetes. And that's a disconnect. And why that's important is if I had a dollar for every person who sat across me in an exam room who felt like this was somehow a failure on their part, or something that they brought upon themselves, I would be really rich. I'm not. (laughs) So what I want people to understand who are listening today is you didn't do this. You didn't bring this on yourself. Not all overweight people get diabetes. We don't even really know what causes it. So to say that something is preventable, we have to target the onset and the cause and be able to say, if you don't do this, then you won't get that. And that's just not what diabetes is. And for me, why is that an important thing that patients understand? I think we have a shame spiral that comes with this disease that prevents people from going to the doctor. And the most important thing about diabetes is early intervention by your healthcare professional to help you navigate the disease. Now, once you have it, are there things you can do that make it easier to manage? Absolutely. Are there things you can do to prevent yourself from going on insulin? Absolutely. But I think that people are under the impression that they've somehow caused this. They're bad. They should be ashamed. And it prevents them from getting the help they need to keep their their diagnosis at, at a lower level rather than having it kind of run amok without intervention, which we see so much of. Well, that's a great word, and that's why I asked the question, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, because people, you do, you do hear largely uh, from people that it is, you know, something that's more lifestyle. So, so is it, I mean, you said that we really don't know what causes it. Mm -hmm. Do do we know much about either genetics or environmental factors? So, the thing about do we know, the question of do we know in medicine, which I think a lot of people with COVID have been introduced to medical studies and misunderstanding and misconceptions. We in medicine use something called evidence-based research, which means we take people, we study people, we introduce people to certain drugs, and we track how they respond, how their disease responds, and then we present what those results are. But I I help run one of our um, research groups at um, in, amongst our dialysis clinics. So we take patients and enroll them in a research study to see if we can improve management. And what people don't understand is in these studies, there's very specific things that will allow you to participate. So it's an extremely controlled environment and we're very selective as to who we use. So I often tell people when you hear about a study the majority of the people that are in that study and are represented in the outcome of that study are what we call a bell curve. They fall under the bell curve. But then all those dots outside the bell curve, they're people too. There are people who don't respond to medication the way everybody else does. And that doesn't mean that they can't use that medication. But I tell people all the time we practice medicine because we have to kind of adapt to people who don't respond the way the research responds. So when you look at 
ways to kind of approach diabetes in a patient, one of the things I like to do is have patients take a, a, a look at what they do. Don't read an article. Don't go, you know, go on a diet. Don't go pay someone a whole lot of money to tell you what to do. Take a, a period of time and start like looking at what are you eating? How much are you moving? What motivates you to like feel better? What do you do that makes you feel better? And everyone's different. But the most important thing that I, I hope people take home from this is go to your healthcare provider. Make sure you're paying attention. Get your annual physicals. And one of the hardest things that we're facing with COVID, especially in this part of the world, is that people haven't been able to do their basic preventative health care because, you know, our offices were closed for a period of time. And we did a large portion of our medicine through telehealth. So it's very easy because who likes to go to the doctor? I'm going to tell you, most doctors don't like to go to the doctor. But when you have something like diabetes or you are on track to have diabetes, then you really need a healthcare provider helping you guide the way through what medication, should you be on medication, can you do diet control? And that is overwhelming for someone to do by themselves. So I think they need direction and support. And sure. a lot of people will think that they, they aren't going to have diabetes or they're going to have diabetes because a sister or a brother or a parent had it. Does that set you up for possibly having it? Yes. Is it written in stone? No. And I would argue the earlier you get your diabetes kind of just diagnosed, the better off you are and the less aggressive intervention you'll need down the line. We're visiting this morning with Dr. Denise Rivers. She's a nephrologist. She's with University Nephrology. Na uh, November is National Diabetes Month. And when we come back, we're going to talk some of about a little bit more about the longer term um, how you can be monitoring this and maybe catch, catch it when you're pre-diabetic. So please stay tuned as you're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. And, you know, our probably the most important way we can invest in ourselves is to invest in our health. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. We are visiting this morning with Dr. Denise Rivers. She is a nephrologist over at the University, over at University Nephrology, over at the UT Medical Center. And uh, Dr. Rivers, talk a little bit, uh, if you can, about the long-term effects of diabetes on the body. Sure, that's kind of where we come in uh, to, to helping treat diabetics, patients who have diabetic kidney disease. And one of the things that we try to impress upon our, our primary care doctors in the area who are, they're real heroes and swamped with um, large amounts of patients and how we help is early referrals to us for patients who have early signs of potential kidney disease associated with diabetes. And the other things that can affect you if you have diabetes are heart disease, 
vascular disease, um, retinopathy, which is can lead to blindness. And one thing I think people see that we hear about more frequently is neuropathy, which is the numbness and tingling of the feet and legs that can come with diabetes. And I think the reason people seek medical attention for that is it's, it's symptomatic. You feel it. And that drives you to get help from your physician. The scariest thing for us about diabetes, and diabetes terrifies me as a doctor, is the fact that it's asymptomatic, which means you can have it and not know you have it for a really long time. And it can be doing damage. I tell, and it's kind of a a ham-handed correlate, but I tell people it's like having termites in your home that you don't necessarily see them. And until you see them, you don't know what to do. So, you know, you have your home inspected, especially if you live in an old house. But diabetes is one of those things that can kind of lurk in the shadows for many, many years with no overt symptoms that, that bother you. And it's doing damage for all those years. So screening is really important. Going to your primary care doctor, making sure you have a primary care doctor, being evaluated, having screenings done, you know, people will have health fairs and things. And making sure, which is scary, people don't want to know, but kind of taking that leap and finding out, am I at risk? Do I have prediabetes? Is there anything I can do early on to help this from getting worse? And what I will say is the long-term effects of diabetes, once it's started, we can't stop it. And they're devastating. Loss of limb, loss of vision, heart attack, kidney failure, dialysis. And the saddest thing that I hear pretty regularly is when patients say, I wish I knew this was what was coming. I probably would have been more, act- more proactive earlier on. And they feel guilty. But it's fear that prevents people from getting early help. So you mentioned prediabetes. There are estimated mm-hmm. it's one point, almost 1.8 million people in, in Tennessee, which is mm-hmm. just over 34% of our adult population who have prediabetes yeah. with blood, yeah. blood glucose levels that are higher than normal, but not yet high enough to mm-hmm. be diagnosed as diabetes. And, of course, Tennessee yeah. has a diabetes rate that is higher than the U.S. rate. So why are right. Tennessee residents more likely to be pre-diabetic or diabetic? So I think that needs a reframe because okay. I don't think that we are more likely. I think that we are less likely to have early intervention. Um, and it, what I hear is oh, the way we eat, and I'm a Yankee, so I'm a, I'm a damn Yankee. I came down and married a local boy. So I know our food choices down here are different, but again, that puts the blame on the patient. And though your responsibility as a patient is is to take control and do everything you can to manage your disease, but the idea that, oh, if you live in Tennessee, you're more likely to get diabetes is, is kind of a misconception. The other thing, and I know if my patients are listening, they uh, I know exactly what they're thinking about the word prediabetes. I don't like to use that word. I don't like to use that term because to me it allows for, oh, I'm just pre-diabetic. I don't need to pay attention to it until I'm diabetic. And I'll have patients say to me, well, I have pre-diabetes. And to me, pre-diabetes is like pre-pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. 
you either have diabetes or you don't. And if someone has used the term pre-diabetes with you, the clock starts ticking with your first diagnosis of anything other than normal blood sugar. And when that clock starts ticking, that means damage to all of those other conditions, vascular, heart, eyes, uh, nervous system, kidneys, begin. And, you know, over about 10 years, you can start to see end organ damage. And that's something we cannot reverse. We cannot fix. So I often tell my patients not to use that word. Now, you said, um, you know, certainly it's not, you know, you don't like when people say it's a preventable disease, and it's not a preventable disease. Mm-hmm. Um, no. You did mention the importance of diet and exercise. So um, mm-hmm. what what is the relationship between diet and exercise? Because it does seem like with anything else, I mean, cardiovascular disease is not necessarily preventable as an example, but there are things we can right. do to improve the likelihood we don't develop cardiovascular disease. Is that is that a reasonable thing to say with uh, with type 2 diabetes? I think the word prevention to me um, belongs with like smoking. It's stop smoking. You can prevent the side effects from smoking, like um, emphysema lung cancer, if you stop smoking, you can prevent emphysema. That's a, that's a solid, honest statement. Um, when you use the word prevention, um, I think what our patients here are is um, if you had done this, you wouldn't have that. And, and for me, I know I feel like I'm beating a dead horse on this, but it's so important that your patient feel like you're not going to judge them. Um, they are coming for help. So when you look at diet and exercise, the first thing I tell people is don't look at diet as a weight loss. Like you're not trying to get into a smaller size pants. You're not trying to physically appear different and lose weight to do so. Diet encompasses what you eat, what you ingest, and paying really close attention to what you eat allows you to kind of look at it with a non-judgmental eye. Where can I do better for my disease? So if you are eating a lot of refined foods, a lot of processed foods, um, things that are very high in sugar or carbohydrate, those are all ways that paying attention to that and learning what replacements in your diet will better affect your blood sugar is really important early on and needs to be done in a non-shaming manner because it's really hard to take a good look in our society at what you're eating without kind of attaching it to a number of weight on the scale. And I think you can manage your diabetes with the help of your healthcare provider with diet and with medication to get the best effect for your body. And not everyone responds the same way. The, again, the most important thing is just to be aware and pay attention to when you have this diagnosis that you're doing everything you can to manage it. Exercise doesn't have to be joining a gym and working out two hours a day. Exercise can be walking for 20 minutes a day, adding a minute each week and walking 10 minutes out and 10 minutes back, excuse me, adding any activity to your day actually helps decrease your blood sugar. 
and tracking that helps you see the little changes you make having a long-term effect on needing less medication. And the earlier and, you intervene, the better. Yeah, and I know you're focusing on treatment, um, mm -hmm. but you know, we do want, I mean, we do want, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I would want to use the word prevention, but you know, I don't, um, I, I, well, well, I know that that's a, you know, a, an area that, that you don't like to go, but I mean, the, the food we put in our body affects blood sugar and the, and the, the exercise mm -hmm. or lack thereof affects blood sugar. So people mm -hmm. that don't have diabetes now, uh, mm -hmm. but want to maximize the likelihood that they do not develop diabetes, I mean, food and, food and exercise is very important in that equation, right? It's important in management. I, I, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I told you that um, our, our patient population that shows up late with diabetes has been doing everything right and they got it everywhere, er, anyway. The majority of people aren't, you know, they do the best they can or they, they behave in a, in a kind of traditional habit-based eating. So I don't want people to think, you know, you can eat Katie Bar the door uh, for years and years and years and then change automatically. So routinely, the first thing I tell people is kind of pay attention to how much processed food you're eating, how much convenience food you're eating. And the, the issue for that is people have a really hard time eating, quote unquote, healthy food because it's expensive and they get to the point where you'll buy a, you know, a week's worth of groceries of what we're told is healthy and it sits and rocks in your refrigerator because one, you don't know how to prepare it or you don't care for it. So one of the things that I tell my patients is find out if your health insurance will allow you to see a dietitian and find a dietitian that specializes in diabetes. And they're going to ask you to, to, have a food log and to look at how you're eating. And that dietitian is going to help you navigate some better food choices. Yeah, that's um, a great word. Hey, I'll tell you what, Dr. Yeah. Rivers, well, I'm so sorry. We've got to get to our next break. Um, when okay. we come back, we, we, we'll, 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 we'll visit on this a little bit more and also talk about some of the medical and, and, and the pharmaceutical industry. Also, we're going to have our dollars and cents segment. What type of tax changes are we likely to see with Build Back Better? Um, you know, just pass the House, unlikely to pass the Senate the way that it is currently worded. And, and more importantly, what should you be doing in your planning? So stay with us as we visit with Dr. Denise Rivers. She's a nephrologist. This is Diabetes Awareness Month. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. We're, we're, we're with you every Saturday here at News Talk 98.7 WOKI from 9 to 10 a.m. and again 3, 3 to 4 p.m. You can also catch all of our podcasts online. Go to broganfinancial.com and click on radio. You can catch all of our shows and our dollars and cents segments. And speaking of that, it is time for dollars and cents. 
Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. How should we be reacting to the tax ramifications of what's going on in Congress and in Washington right now? The Build Back Better plan recently, just this week, passed the House. It is now going to the Senate where it is expected to be modified more. Uh, then it'll have to go back to the House. Uh, excuse me, it's going to the Senate where it'll likely have to be modified more. Here's what I've noticed. You know, there were a lot of things that got removed from the language in the Build Back Better plan uh, when it was in the House. They've removed many of the large tax changes, especially to corporations and even largely to high net worth people, things like eliminating the long-term capital gains rate. You know, this is a, our, our, our congressional system and the way we pass laws is very much a give and take that evolves. And I think that the, the message of the day here in the short term is wait and see is a better approach than overreacting to potential tax changes. Because in the short term, we just don't know. We've got the reality of a 50-50 Senate and a very closely divided House. We've got the reality of, in many ways, a divided Democratic Party and a unified Republican Party that wants to oppose it. So we just don't know how that's going to shake out. I'm not saying what should or should not happen. I'm just looking at how should we be adjusting our financial planning. Making short-term knee-jerk reactions could be dangerous. I've heard stories, I've heard from people that have made decisions earlier this year based on an expectation that tax rates would change, especially long-term gains rates, that they would change retroactively to earlier this year and now those things are clearly not going to happen, and they regret having made those, those changes and, and done that planning. So wait and see, and seeing what's finally in the final bill is so important. Now, it is important, like from my vantage point as a financial advisor, it's important to understand what is being talked about. Because when things are starting to show up in bills, it tells me it's becoming more mainstream in the thought of one political party or another. So it is a maybe a little of, of a precursor into what may come later. But in terms of what happens in the short term, I think we have to be careful we don't overreact. Now, that being said, tax planning, in my view, is as important as it's ever been, especially for today's retirees. Because you have more control of your income taxes in retirement than you do at every other, any other time in your life. And the reason for that is you don't have earned income. You determine where you pull your income from and how it's taxed, and you determine how you invest your money and how those investments are taxed. So you have a great deal of control of that, especially prior to age 72, when you have to start taking minimum distributions from your retirement account. Now, don't get me wrong. When I look at the landscape, when I'm looking at the longer term, I think it's pretty likely I'm not saying 95%, but greater than 50% anyway, that we're going to have a different tax environment 10 years from now. But we don't know when those changes will happen. 
So we should absolutely be positioning things today to take advantage of what right now is likely to be a lower tax environment than what we're going to have in the future. Actually, we know it is because the personal income tax rates go up after 2025 because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the personal side of that for personal tax returns expires. So we know they're going up. They're probably going to go up more dramatically in my opinion. That may not happen. But you can be doing things today to take advantage of, the, of those things down the road. But don't overreact to things that are being proposed or when one party says this or another party says that. Cooler heads prevail. We take measured and calculated decisions on how we can reduce the greatest expense you and I will ever have in our lifetimes, income taxes. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. More Living comes to you every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and again, 3 to 4 p.m. right here at News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're visiting this morning with Dr. Denise Rivers. Uh, November is National Diabetes Awareness Month, and we've not done much on having a show specifically on diabetes. We've done a lot of cardiac stuff, cardiovascular disease, with our good friend Dr. Jeff Johnson over at University Cardiology. We've also talked about women's health, men's health, and a lot about cancer prevention. Diabetes is such an important thing, and as we've discussed, 10% of our adult population has uh, diabetes. And so, Dr. Rivers, she's with uh, University Nephrology over at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Let's talk about treatment modalities, Dr. Rivers. You know, it's hard to escape the advertising for medications that's done from pharmaceutical companies. Does the prevalence of medication advertisements, does it help or hurt when it comes to treating your patients? Um, that's a, that's a, Loaded question. Um, I think it is, if, if the patient is driven by seeing an advertisement on television to ask their doctor about being tested for diabetes, sure, I think it's a good thing. Um, the, the prevalence of medications and advertisement of medications, I think, is good in that it, we have a patient who is already diagnosed with diabetes, has been on a certain medication for some time, it sometimes spurs them to talk to their doctor about, is there a better option out there for me? I think the most important thing I tell my patients is the conversation of what medication you should be used, uh, you should be using, should be between you and your physician, and it should be an open dialogue. And you should, I, I tell all my patients across the board, always go to your doctor's office with a list of questions. Um, so they can help navigate you through what is a massive information dump when it comes to medications sure. for diabetes. Now, there have been news reports about the rising cost of insulin, which, of course, is the primary mm -hmm. medication used, especially as diabetes develops. Insulin has been around for over 100 years. 
uh, in terms mm -hmm. of insulin treatment. Why do you think the cost for insulin has skyrocketed in the past few years? I have no idea. It blows my mind. Um, I think that it's, um, it, you know, we live in a capitalist system, which is fantastic, but it also tends to punish the people who are um, unable financially to provide what they need. And if you're choosing between paying rent and getting your medication, that's a terrible situation to be in. Yeah, that is bad. Or if we look in Canada or in Europe, are costs significantly mm -hmm. higher there too for insulin? I don't think they are. The problem becomes um, the correlate across countries of what manages their medication. Um, we have the FDA, we have, uh, and we have big pharma. And as important as pharmaceutical companies are, and they are important, I think um, there's definitely a political light that's been, for decades, has been influencing this and lining pockets for a long time. Um, for me, it's, it's very difficult to prescribe a medication that I know a patient can't afford. Um, the other thing I want to tell your patients if, or your listeners is if you're on an expensive medication and it's expensive because it's a newer medication and it is working for you, all of the pharmaceutical companies have patient assistance programs because they want the medication out there. So if you're unable to afford it, they really do work hard at trying to get you what you need. We use it all the time in our in our um, patient population. And I think this goes to, you had asked me earlier about why do more people in this area have diabetes? And I think people can't afford preventive healthcare. People have a hard time um, making themselves and their health a priority and understanding what their health is, like what they can do to keep themselves healthy. And I know you're asking a lot about prevention. The best prevention is get screened. Go to your doctor. Absolutely. I, I mean, should, I, I, keep, I can't. I mean, I have blood enough. tests every six months and keep an eye on all my blood. Mm -hmm. uh, you oh, know, when one of those you. things is blood sugar level. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. so important. I'm 52. Um, I was yeah. very, very overweight in my 30s. I lost a bunch of weight. I've put a little back on. Mm -hmm. I'm still a little overweight. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have to keep an eye on that thing. And I think prevention and being in tune to our bodies is so critically important to prevent major issues down the road. Dr. Rivers, right. I do want to ask you, I mean, many people can live for years by taking medication and making lifestyle modifications mm -hmm. to help yeah. control their diabetes. What happens to the body that then triggers the need for dialysis? Oh, that's so the other part of this is if you have a diagnosis of diabetes and you're being treated, um, I, I've noticed that people don't know what questions to ask or what to look for. And we as physicians are doing everything we can and getting them to the doctors that are needed for the what we call comorbidities, the, the other illnesses that exist alongside of or because of. Um, diabetes. One of the things for my world is if you have a diagnosis of diabetes, always ask your doctor to do a urine. Um, make sure they're checking your urine for protein. The second that protein shows up in your urine, ask for a referral to nephrology. I, I, any nephrologist. We have wonderful colleagues in this area. But 
early intervention, and we have been really um, blessed by primary care doctors who understand the importance of early referrals. And if you have protein in your urine, ask about it and understand that that's an early sign that diabetes is in your kidneys. You do have diabetic kidney disease, and that is incurable and will progress. And the crazy thing about diabetic kidney disease, every other diabetic problem is managed, prevented, controlled by sugar control. Diabetic kidney disease responds to blood pressure control. The sugar control is important, but the most important thing is blood pressure control. So through this hour, that's very interesting. No one does. Um, I tell people we are the redheaded stepchild of the organ system. The kidney is a very blue collar um, organ, but blood pressure, blood pressure, blood pressure, and appropriate blood pressure medication, which is a RAS inhibition, uh, renin angiotensin system, things like ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, things like lisinopril, things like uh, Olmosartan, those are medications that protect the kidney. And even if you have normal blood pressure, we put you on those medicines to protect the kidney and slow the development or worsening of overt renal failure from diabetes. So always ask your doctor what, there are some things you should know. Know your creatinine. Creatinine is a muscle breakdown product. It's like waste. Um, So it's like you make, you take your trash out every week. And everybody uses paper towels. Use the same amount of paper towels every week. So counting creatinine is kind of like paying attention to the paper towels that you use and the paper towels that you throw out. If the paper towels start building up in your kitchen, you want to know why why is the garbage not being taken out. Same in your body. As the creatinine builds in your body, why is the kidney not taking out the trash? And that's the first marker we use to look at to say, oh, wow, is something going on? Then we look at the urine. Is there protein in the urine? And then, you know, sending you to us to do a more extensive workup and to get you on everything we can to slow down the progression to dialysis. And one of the things that people will kind of fixate on are their numbers and their creatinine and all the different lab values. We decide dialysis when a patient progresses Dialysis is a clinical picture. There's really not a number that we look at that will initiate dialysis. Uh, we do emergent dialysis for certain numbers, high potassiums, very acidotic patients. But starting long-term dialysis is a clinical picture, and that's something that varies with everyone. Dr. Denise Rivers with University Nephrology, thank you so much for being with us this week uh, and taking time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure. It's been great having you on. (laughs) Go to your doctor. That's exactly right. Stay in tune to our bodies. Uh, November's National Diabetes Awareness Month. Just stay in tune to our bodies. Get regular checkups. Stay on top of this. Uh, Today we've discussed your health because greater health provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Thank you to Dr. Denise Rivers with University Nephrology. Thank you to Chris for engineering the show. Thank you to Jill for producing the show. And uh, next week, we're going to have important, crucial things to understand about your year-end financial planning. How does inflation play in? How does tax planning play in? 
all the different things. Inflation is becoming a bigger, bigger issue and may be the major driver of how the market evolves in the next six months. Thank you for tuning with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.